Welcome to the JLA Cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John, and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ, and I am literally melting. Yeah, um, it's not good, really. Um, we 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 we're um we we how. We're not built for this. No, the the UK is not built for the heat it is currently getting. It's it's a very, you know, it's a maritime climate, so it's a very wet heat. You know, it's very humid, very heavy, thick air. And our houses were built for the cold weather and to keep the heat in. So mm. we don't have built-in air conditioning and it's it's all horrible. I um I insulated my attic um this year uh, we had nothing before uh so i do keep telling myself that it is marginally better because i have to i have to believe that like if the attic is now designed to stop heat getting out it might also help keep keep some help from getting in uh however it is um it is almost too hot to think at times i mean and it's going to get worse which is great rises so all the heat from the bottom of the house is moving up to the top of the house, and then it can't escape out of that insulation. So, well, now you've said it, PJ. That that seems yes. That does that does seem like how physics in the universe works. So, um, <laughs> last year we we genuinely just um, we took the mattress off the bed and we dragged it downstairs to the lounge, and we spent like five days just sleeping down in the lounge because it was the only only place that was even agreeably cold. Cool. No, cold is the wrong way of looking at it. Um, cool, shall we say? Do you know what? That's not a bad idea. I've got I've got a friend who last year, in when we had the heat last year, he uh, took their mattress outside, put it on a couple of benches they've got there, and like rigged up some netting over the bed, oh so that they were basically sleeping on a lovely bed in a tent. That and actually sounds incredible. I know. I know. Well, it's just we'd a- need that in the UK. I know it's just started like raining here, so there's like a very slight relief, but it's not. It's like kind of mostly warm rain. Yeah. So it did that here earlier, and it didn't drop the temperature at all. It just made it even more humid. Yeah, we have one fan in the house. <laughs> and, two, and um, it's currently downstairs with Lucy because I, I thought it would be very indulgent of me to grab it and take it upstairs. While I while I I talk about um, very sensible things like uh, the Grant Morrison run on J. <laughs> yeah, m- mine's not in this room mostly because it would be too noisy. Mm. <laughs> oh, that is true. Yeah. That is true. Audio quality big factor. 
Well, well then, I hope um, people won't begrudge me if I do this. <sighs> you son of a bitch. I'm sorry, PJ. I'm having a beer. Oh, mate. Mate. This is how you know it's an evening recording session, because John only drinks when we do JLA nights. <laughs> oh, I wish I didn't have work in the morning, and then I would indulge in a lovely gin and tonic. Well, no, you're, you're a very responsible person, PJ. Uh, what, what time do you have to be up? Uh, well, here's the thing. I start work at nine, but I'm working from home, so technically I could just get up at like half eight, but... I get up at seven and I use the that morning time to edit my other podcast or do some writing or because so, it's I find yes. that easier than trying to do it after work when I'm exhausted. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I get up. I get up stupid early as well, like every day, just to try and cram as much into the morning as possible. Mm. I mean, like maybe you could have like a light gin and tonic. This is a small beer. This is not a big beer. <laughs> I, I don't want to be an enabler here, but I feel maybe you could have like a small treat if you felt like it. It's it's okay. I've got a nice glass of Dr. Pepper and then a pint of water in another glass because mm. I know these recordings usually go more than one drink. <laughs> yes, I have, um, I have a chaser of um, my water bottle beside me. <laughs> uh, and I should apologise. If anyone hears like, um, like seagulls or distant screaming... Uh, like in in the audio of this episode, it's because I do have to, as a survival measure, have the window slightly open next to me. I don't live by the sea, but some seagulls have moved in to the roof of nearby houses and they're dive bombing people near our house. So there's a a bit of rural charm while we talk about (laughs) uh, the end of the universe. (laughs) Rural charm indeed. Hmm. Now, PJ, um, before we get back into World War Three, which I'm very excited about, mm. uh, we do have a couple of uh, unrelated topics to talk about. Um, and we're going to keep them relatively snappy because, again, we know you listeners deserve excellent content, but also our brains are slowly kind of like sublimating in our heads. So we're going to we're going to like focus only on the facts and uh the first thing is we've both seen thor love and thunder it does feel rare that we've both seen a movie close to when it came out when we're also recording the podcast yeah it doesn't really get more current than this does it um because yeah normally we're completely out of sync i i actually i credit a couple of my more organized friends for doing all the legwork in putting together a cinema trip and then just dragging me to it (laughs) Yeah, it as as we record, it only came out at the end of last week. So, you know, we we've both seen it and it's it's a recent release that we can discuss. Mm. So, for the first time ever on a podcast about a 25-year-old comic, Ish. uh we we we're, we're of the moment. Um PJ, what do you think? So I liked it. I did like it. Uh but I would say I didn't like it as much as Ragnarok, and I don't think it's top-tier Marvel for me. I think there was a lot of good stuff in there, some really good emotional beats, some great performances, but I feel like with Ragnarok, Taika Waititi obviously brought his own brand of silliness 
to the Marvel mm. Universe. But I thought Ragnarok did it really well. It trod the balance very nicely. There were times when I felt Love and Thunder just tiptoed over it a bit too much and the silliness undercut some of the moments for me. No, I agree. I know. Uh, incredibly uh, good good summary. I, uh, I, um, yeah, I found myself oddly conflicted, like coming out of it. It's very, it's a very odd feeling to uh, enjoy a movie a lot, and yet somehow feel that something was missing. Hmm. Um, I think. More, I think I've been get I've been feeling this way for a, for a while with some of the more recent content, but it certainly just felt a bit like this is becoming increasingly meaningless <laughs> in, in a way, and I found myself like enjoying the movie kind of like I would enjoy a really good joke, like it's undeniably like well crafted and funny, and it's got big punchlines and payoffs and stuff, but. I don't know. I, I I almost feel like you could tell a joke in like any franchise. Maybe a joke is like the wrong analogy, but like I don't know. It didn't really feel like it was building to anything, or that there were any kind of real stakes or meaningful consequences. Because I guess what is the Marvel Cinematic Universe nowadays? It's very much in flux. Mm. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I agree. I think part of that as well is that while I thought Christian Bale was clearly having a lot of fun playing Gore the God Butcher, the character itself was underserved somewhat by the movie. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Um, it's so weird because there's moments in the film where he's incredibly uh, chilling yes. as, a, as a presence. But then there's also moments where he's very goofy. Yeah. And I found the two never really gelled in my head. Despite knowing, like, academically that he was out for revenge, I never really got got him as a character or what he was kind of trying to achieve. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a hell of a... Like, if it's becoming a bit of a roller coaster ride, I mean, it was a hell of a ride. Um, and some genuinely, like, laugh-out-loud moments. Like, um... There's uh, a recurring joke, shall we say, in the movie. And at one point, Lucy was actually crying <laughs> next to me. She was laughing so hard. So, like, yeah, it's hard to, like, I don't want to come down too hard on a film that made me laugh that much. But it just felt weird. I, no, it's very hard to pin down. I agree. And as I say, I, I enjoyed it. I, I think I, I will gladly watch it again. And it reignited a crush on Natalie Portman that I thought was long dormant. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, it just wasn't, I, I think, certainly, what's this, Marvel's phase, fourth phase, phase four? Yes. I think, you know, I certainly preferred both Spider-Man and uh, Shang-Chi, I think. Um, and, yeah, but no, I, I enjoyed it. I'll, I'll watch another one, whatever. I think, um, weirdly enough, I, I think one of the things, that, one of the, the most recent Marvel project that I've really loved was Loki. Loki was great. I honestly think that's one of the best things I've ever made, like in terms of just cinematography and design and story. It was just really kind of coherent. Um this felt kind of like a lot more like a like a like a like a pop song, you yeah. know. Like which I guess is kind of fitting given a lot of the um musical theming, but yeah, I I don't know. I definitely don't want to be a grump about it, but I can kind of see now that 
I'm 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 almost starting to realise that like I'm drifting away from these movies in an odd way. Ah, um, see, I I don't think I am because um, have you been watching Miss Marvel? No, I haven't actually. No, I haven't seen Moon Knight either. Okay, I those have kept me sucked in both of them. I thought Moon Knight was great. And I think Miss Marvel is one of my favourite things Marvel have done for a while. Oh, it's, interesting, interesting. It's really, really good. It's got a really unique and vibrant style. It's got an amazing cast. Um, absolutely brilliant set of young actors playing the characters. And it has also... It's it's not not in the same way, but it's brought in a really deep cut set of Marvel characters that I personally absolutely love. <laughs> now it's done them they have absolutely no resemblance to the characters from the comics, but just the fact that they've used the name made me go, "Oh my god, that is brave and I'm here for it." Do you think there's an element of um I mean we're getting to the, we're getting to the point now where it's like it's almost you know what I mean, we're probably going to get like a like a stingray cameo. Oh, I hope so. Just in something just in something <laughs> because or a, a D-man cameo because <laughs> like they almost have done everything now it's kind of wild yeah yeah we'll be we'll be on phase eight and it'll be as you say d-man sleepwalker uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god sleepwalker jeez <laughs> dark hawk oh my god um <laughs> who else would be really obscure now it's a test isn't it to see silver claw oh nice uh, nice the gardener. Ooh. Wow, yeah, no, that, that, that would work. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, it's wild, isn't it? I think, and this is where I, I definitely, I definitely do not mean this in a, a kind of negative or like a kind of snooty, like, oh, you know, they've drifted away from the comics. Right? I, I, I do not mean that. I'm not being that guy. But for me, I'm kind of just feeling now that the movies are they're a thing unto themselves that it's that you know yeah. obviously we're way past just doing comic book adaptations but the marvel cinematic universe has become such a cultural touchstone that is is in many ways bigger than the comics that preceded them now and i just know you know there are there are people alive today who were maybe uh born after iron man came out yeah who are now loving every single second of this and in a way i kind of realized that like for them they were born and raised and forged in the fires of the marvel cinematic universe so <laughs> this is really they're they're the people who are literate in this and this is for them and i'm sure and i hope and i i really hope it continues to be just as entertaining for all of them but i i, I just weirdly find myself kind of moving away a little bit from it i i don't know i don't know what it is i want but I'm not sure if I'm entirely getting it at the moment. And that's fine. You know, it's fine. I think from my perspective, because I'm not really reading any new Marvel comics at the moment, it's a way of me still getting that hit, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I still get to uh, get a new story with these characters and go, oh, yeah, like, great, I enjoyed that. And I don't have to be reading the monthly comics anymore. It's really, I think, I think the thing that's kind of, yeah, because I'm in the same boat as you. I mean, uh, and what's well, a good example actually because i found it became everyone hits that point where it becomes almost impossible to keep up with what's going on in the comics mm. because they're very self-referential they're very um 
it's the eternal continuity battle, isn't it? You go, ah, oh, well, we can't expect someone to have read several hundred issues of a comic, so, you know, what do we do? Um, and it's always, you know, oh, oh, you know, if you're wondering why Spider-Man has a robotic arm, then just pick up, you know, issue 78 of um, Secret Conflicts and stuff like that. You know, it's all just kind of this big spider web of cross-referencing things. Yeah. And that's, I think, kind of why I stopped reading comics. And now I feel that's kind of what the movies are to some extent. Like, um, if you are not 100% invested in it, it it could border on being incomprehensible. Yeah, yeah. Well, there are now, I think, I think I'm right in saying as of Thor Love and Thunder, there are more Marvel films than there have been carry-on movies. <laughs> oh my god. Was that the benchmark? Well, no, it's I, think, like you... I think after Carry On, it's got to overtake Bond because I want to say Bond is on like twenty six or twenty seven now. So, but I think you know three or four movies, and Marvel put out three or four a year at the moment. So I think within it's a year insane, or two, it'll have overtaken Bond as well. I can't believe it's only been like two months since uh, Doctor Strange came yeah. out, or something like less even. It's insane. Yeah, well, two two uh, two TV series since then, and um, God knows, God knows how it, isn't She Hulk like the next one? Yeah, in August, and then we've got another film towards the end of the year. I think we've got Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Which, which kind of suggests that they've, like, shot that movie. Oh, yeah, they have. Yeah, all right, okay, yeah. I just, I was like, oh, my God, can, can they make them so quickly now that they can just um, um, churn them out? Wow, that's insane. <laughs> but we've not really, like, they've done a quite good job of keeping that under wraps then, like the, you know, leaks or whatever. Marvel are good at that. And then I quite like this actually that they'll misdirect you in the trailers. Like some some people get angry when like the Infinity War trailer you have that shot of Cap running forward leading mm. a team and the Hulk is there. And then that and wasn't War in Machine, the film. Yeah. In the film it was in the uh the Hulk Buster armor, Dr. Banner, and people were like angry because oh they've lied to us. And I'm like, No, this is good. Because they're welcome- making me want to see the film, but they're not actually spoiling anything for me. And I guess welcome to the world of um Comic book covers. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> which have been lying to us for years. <laughs> I think um I think what's weird slightly weird to me is that like I really I, I we're um we were doing we were watching the entire um cinematic universe in chronological order. Mm-hmm. So uh so the the setting on Disney Plus for lets you kind of experience them in time progression. And um I've gotta say, like I found myself enjoying some of the ones which at the time I thought were just okay. I've been enjoying them a lot more in okay. hindsight. Like um, I, I, Iron Man 1, which of course is obviously the big the thing that scarred it all, loved it back in the day. And watching it again now, I'm like, okay, it's still a, it's still a perfectly good movie. But then Captain America, the first Avenger, I was like, that is a really good movie. Like I was, I always remember thinking like it was like a B plus. Oh no, I've I've been flying the flag for the first Avenger since it. I loved it the first yeah. time I saw it. I absolutely loved it, and I've been flying that flag since then. And it, yeah, no, and honestly, like even Thor, the original Thor, that's great too. Yeah, no, genuinely, and I know like they're not. It's not indicative of what the Marvel universe is now, but like they were. This could be a weird thing to say, but they were more like movies because yeah. the model at the time was to make a kind of 
three-act movie. So, you know, Captain America, it's like you have a proper hero's journey. You go with him on this adventure. And um, we're into phase two now. And we just watched Thor The Dark World. Mm. And honestly, like, I think I know I'm, I'm an oddity in this, but I really liked Thor The Dark World at the time. And I continue to actually quite like it. I, I think it gets a bit slow in the second half. But I, I think the first half in particular has got some inc- lovely character development. It's very well written. And I, I thought some of the visuals were, were amazing. So I'm actually kind of enjoying like the slightly slower paced movies from back in the day. The Dark World is, I would say, one of my least favourite Marvel movies. And, and when I rewatched them a few years ago, it remained that way. But even that does have stuff in it I really like. Yeah, it's funny. Um, it's so funny. Like, I remember seeing uh, Age of Ultron the first time back in the day. Mm. And I remember, I think, after the dizzying high of avengers i remember like seeing that in the cinema the first time really felt like a kind of life-changing moment i was so excited and i probably haven't been that excited for something since which is kind of like sad in a way but i remember genuinely kind of like quivering with excitement when i saw avengers and then i remember seeing age of ultron and being a little kind of like just just going like oh yeah that was good you know but not kind yeah but it's so weird, like, because we watched Avengers the other day, and going back to it now, I was like, it's very talky. <laughs> yeah. There's, a, there's a, like, obviously, there's some great moments, but it's also, it's very, um, almost like sitcom-y, just like kind of characters walk into a scene, have snappy dialogue, and then kind of walk out. Mm. Whereas I've got to say, like, Age of Ultron has actually gone up in my estimation over the years. Like, Me too, actually, yeah. Yeah, I really, I quite enjoy rewatching Age of Ultron. It really feels like a six-issue comic miniseries. Um, it's not really structured like a movie at all, but like you just get these nice little encounters where I'm like, oh yeah, this is this is charming. You can settle in for a couple of hours and have a good time. Every few years, like basically before they're going to release another of the big films. So last time it was when Infinity War was coming out. I do have a hankering to just do a rewatch of all of it. And I'm always surprised by something when I do. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Well, I'll tell you what, PJ, given that we've just had... This is going to be a great segue, just you wait. Uh, given that we've just had quite... We've turned our movie review into quite uh, an insightful uh, commentary on... Uh, uh, maintaining continuity versus drawing new readers in which to is a how, degree we did we did touch on that <laughs> which is how i'm kind of spinning it um i just want to say that we've had an absolutely incredible email sent in from listener david yost who who doesn't have a nickname yet yet we're but gonna he, give nicknames to everybody uh but he he does propose that uh there is there is a nickname he would he would he would take if it's on offer so um we'll um we'll touch on that in a bit but no uh david if you're listening thank you for your incredible email and uh it really really insightful commentary on the issue of continuity yeah which we have discussed i think if not directly but at least kind of indirectly several times on the show yes i think we have discussed it directly once or twice to be honest but (laughs) yeah so i mean really like what is the the key issue is continuity like how if you have a superhero comic that is in principle never going to end 
if you have characters that are never going to age and die, how do you develop... How do you have character development when a character is forever being reset? Yeah. Yeah. And by reset, I mean maybe DC presses the universe wipe button or you just kind of dial back to the status quo in a weird way. Or Spider-Man makes a deal with Mephisto. Yes. Yes. That is that is also a sensible thing for a person to <laughs> do. Um, but yeah, so um, David's written a lot and it is genuinely all very good. But ra- rather than kind of read it all, um, all out in full... Um, so I'll just kind of read like a little bit to give you a kind of like a bit of a feeling of this. So David writes, having been a regular reader of superhero comics since the late 1980s, I've seen this problem crop up several times over the decades. As the two of you discussed, the issue continuously becomes that the publishers don't want to let their characters stray too far from the original concept. <laughs> concept. Sorry, you can tell it's getting hot. <laughs> uh, so as to become unrecognizable to new readers. But in constantly trying to put everything back in the box, they rob the stories of having any sense of progress or forward momentum. I'm sure some of my views on this are clouded by nostalgia, but I feel like the stories of the 80s and the 90s were more inclined to allow characters to progress rather than trying to keep them frozen in amber. At the time, Marvel characters had not really hit that continuity bloat, and DC characters were fresh enough out of Crisis on Infinite Earths that they were less encumbered by the same issues. PJ, your comics. I again, it might be nostalgia, but I agree with I agree with him. I feel like there was an element of you could have a change in the eighties and nineties. Look at it's the mid eighties when Wally West becomes the Flash. It's the early nineties when Kyle Rayner becomes Green Lantern. It's the mid nineties when Ben Riley becomes Spider Man. You, you know, the eighties is also when Peter Parker marries Mary Jane. Um, yeah, oh, I, yeah, I feel like you point. could yeah. you, you could move characters forward to a degree in the eighties. Scott Summers gets married and has a baby, you know. Um, yeah, so you, you were allowed to do that to a certain point. It's the eighties when Dick Grayson becomes Nightwing. So yeah, yeah. That's, that's a, yeah, no, it's a really good point what you were saying about Marvel because I I I'd been thinking of this as kind of more of like a DC problem, but you're you're right because. When I think of some of the first Spider-Man comics that I picked up, I I still think of it very fondly. But I picked up a random story where um, it's all clone related, and it, you know, as a, as a lot of the stuff was at the time. But I was like, why is Ben Riley Spider-Man? But Peter and MJ are happily married, and I was like, I even though it was weird and it wasn't what I kind of recognised, I really liked it because I think in my young head I just assumed that. Spider-Man had had so many adventures since the days of the animated cartoon that just, mm. you know, this is where his life was now. Yeah, yeah. And now most of that stuff's been undone. You know, Barry and Hal are back as Flash and Green Lantern. Spider-Man's not married to Mary Jane anymore and he's Peter Parker again. Uh, Scott Summers' baby is all grown up and cable, so I guess that one kind of stuck around. But that was that was a whole weird thing. But they did also <laughs> they did also bring young versions of the X-Men into the present day. Yeah, that was weird. That was so weird. Again, it's Bendis. But 
you know, it, it's also a classic case of having your cake and eating it too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, it's it's funny, isn't it? Because I know Mar- I know DC characters. Some of the long-standing DC characters have been around longer, but I often think of the '60s as being where this kind of journey began. Um, you know, because obviously Marvel's kind of '60s explosion was incredibly influential, and obviously, and you know, had a big impact on DC. I, I don't think it's even. I don't think it's unkind to say other people other people have commented on it that DC were trying to copy Marvel for a long time. They were trying to get that snappy character dynamic going. I, I think certainly that was the case in like the seventies and the eighties. And I think when you get the um when Green Lantern becomes Green Lantern Green Arrow and you get them travelling across America together under uh, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams, I think. Mm -hmm. I think that was very much a reaction to what Marvel was doing. And to be fair, they did that really well. That is a fantastic run of comics. If you haven't read, I highly recommend checking out. Mm. Mm. Well, do you think then, like, is it a... It's still quite a young industry, uh, despite the fact that, you know, Superman's pushing... 100 now Mm. if this big revolution in comics came in the 60s and you started to see these changes in the 80s and 90s it's like we only get one go around the track you know it's like we've never had a a a comics culture like this uh superhero comics culture so i don't know was it just like after 20 or 30 years longer in the case of DC. But after 20 or 30 years of the modern era of comics, did it just feel natural to be aging these characters up in the 80s and 90s because it felt like their career had been going since the 60s, which was maybe, I don't know, like 10 years in comics time? Did it just feel like the right time to do it? I think there's a degree of that. I also think there's an element of you had fewer... um, media tie-ins yes that's always Mm. been a thing superman had the radio serial in the 40s and then the movie serials that both superman and batman had the early fleischer brothers superman cartoons again i love those those are so good (laughs) um and then there's always you know there's always been to a degree superman and batman on screen and then you get spider-man in the 60s and then again in the 80s and then in the 90s there's just sort of this big explosion of it batman the animated series and the x men animated series really kickstarted because they were both so successful that then you get everything's got an adaptation and then the movies become good with blade in the late mm. 90s and then all of a sudden it's like we'd had superman and superman 2 we'd had batman and batman returns and that was about it but all of a sudden it was okay to make a good film out of a comic book and then suddenly everyone's aware of these characters. They want the character they saw in the cartoon or the film. And so Marvel and DC, to a degree, feel that they have to go back to that. And I think that's sort of the pervading culture that's continued. Well, an interesting question for you then, PJ. In a hypothetical universe where there has never been a TV adaptation or a movie adaptation of comic book characters, do we have the same problem? I honestly feel like without the adaptations we probably wouldn't be seeing some of these characters still in print Mm. oh wow wow yeah so that's probably fair because i mean because yeah i like uh the movies are incredible way of funneling people into the comics and you know vice 
versa, but obviously the movies are are hitting such a bigger audience. Like for the first time, you know, a cartoon. Well, I mean, a cartoon was watched by people who couldn't even act. You know, this is my experience growing up, like watching Spider Man, Fantastic Four, Iron Man, Superman. I'm watching the adventures of characters where I can't even buy their stories because I live in the UK. Yeah. And it's the early 90s, and you just can't find this stuff anywhere. I genuinely believe if it hadn't been for the live-action TV show in the 70s, The Incredible Hulk probably wouldn't have been a going concern in the late 80s. No, that's fair, isn't it? Because the, the, the title really struggled for the longest time. Yeah. 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 So weird, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I reckon that... Uh, I feel like Superman and Batman would still be in print and maybe Spider-Man, but almost everything else, it wouldn't surprise me if it had just sort of faded away. I think the speculator market in the 90s would have killed comics Mm. if it hadn't been for these media adaptations for successful cartoons and then the dawn of the successful comic book movie. Well, I know the timeline doesn't match up perfectly between Marvel and DC because obviously DC did Crisis on Infinite Earths. It's mm. been around a bit longer. So the DC universe as of the late 90s is technically, quote unquote, younger than yeah. the Marvel universe, if that makes sense. You know, uh, oh, um, I've already forgotten, PJ, but we've talked about it on air. But in the context of the series we're currently looking at and things like year one, like how long are we saying the JLA have been have existed, if that makes sense, because since Infinite Earths, if that so makes sense. So I think in-universe, in from the beginning of, basically from Superman's first appearance to Morrison's JLA, um, I, I believe at this point the DC mandate was 10 years. Wow, yeah. And Wonder Woman is meant to be quite new to this world. I've, is that I've, correct? Yeah, like, she wasn't there right at the start. I feel like she came, in DC terms, it had been maybe two years. So Wonder Woman's been around for about eight years, I, I mm. think. So I guess my question then is, if it, you know, the DC universe is a little younger at this point in, like, the 90s, you know, around this time where we're seeing, um, yeah, 80s and 90s, as, as David pointed out, where we're seeing, like, a lot of character development, old characters dying, kind of, sidekicks being promoted, that sort of thing. If this was the natural progression of the Marvel and DC universes that started in, like, the 60s, Mm. when did it go wrong, maybe? By which I mean, at what point... And I think the answer is going to be the mid-2000s. Like, at what point did did they each realise, respectively, like, ah, we have a problem here? Yeah, mid-2000s, I think. Uh, Well, maybe even earlier. I think Marvel releasing the Ultimate line was their first hint at, ooh, this could be... In fact, in fact, it goes back before that. Oh, yeah. Do you remember late 90s, John Burns, perpetual enemy of the podcast, John Burns, (laughs) Spider-Man Chapter (laughs) 1? No, I don't. I thought you were going to say Heroes Reborn. No, he didn't do Heroes Reborn. No, Spider-Man Chapter 1 was um, 
written and I want to say also drawn by John Byrne and it started in the late 90s and issue one was a retelling of Amazing Fantasy 15 and then issue two was a retelling of Amazing Spider-Man 1 like that and it was basically retelling the original issues of Amazing Spider-Man but from a modern perspective and they were supposed to replace in continuity the original stories but they were so badly received because they were so poorly written that they very the series very quickly got cancelled and never mentioned again. But that was Marvel's first attempt at tidying up continuity and sort of making the old stuff more modern. Thing is, like, um, current topic notwithstanding, isn't this just generally the John Byrne business model, which is where you kind of hang around the Marvel or DC offices and daily pitch your own kind of personal projects that nobody's massively interested in. And then after enough pressure, you kind of just give in. Yeah, pretty much. you have much. that one thing about the children of Batman and Superman and Lex Luthor. It was like the, like a second generation of like all the children of the current heroes. And I don't think that was massively well received. And my understanding is that DC only let him do it because he'd been asking for like five years. So they just caved. There were two other Marvel series around the same time as Spider-Man Chapter 1. Uh, so one was X-Men The Hidden Years, which was supposed to be between the end of the original X-Men run in 69, I think, and then giant-sized X-Men in 75, so mm. what the original team were up to. But it had them meet like Storm before Storm had joined the X-Men and things like that. Uh. Um, and then there was another one called Marvel The Lost Generation, now I'm trying to remember exactly what this was, but I feel like for some reason this issue count this series counted down, so it started on like issue twelve and counted down to an issue zero. Right. And it told the story of all the heroes that had sort of been around in the Marvel universe and what they got up to in between the end of World War Two, when Captain America and all the invaders and everyone disappeared, and then when the Fantastic Four arrived on the scene. The problem is, all these characters were original John Byrne creations. So... Right, okay. They were all pretty terrible, and I can't even remember what any of them were called. So, so what, was it actually time-locked? Did it actually reference the, the time period you're referring to? So certainly the beginning of it the the post world war 2 i think it may have started in the 50s i think it sort of said the 1950s captain america stories which there were a few of not many but that they were canon it was just that was a different captain america and bucky because that was the bucky that then would grow up to be nomad um in the main <laughs> marvel series i'm i realize when i'm saying this out loud how stupid it all sounds no no you i'm laughing because I'd forgotten that there was another Buffy, uh, Bucky. Yeah. Yeah. And I just remembered it then. Yeah. So I want to say it started in the 50s. I think the sort of general consensus is in that story, it ends in the 80s. And then I think that at that point, they were sort of saying the Fantastic Four came on the scene in the mid to late 80s at that point, because the book was in the late 90s and Fantastic Four have been around for 10 years in universe. You see, it's interesting. It kind of makes me think of. Um... The other Alex Ross book from around the time of Kingdom Come, uh, was it Marvels? Marvels. With Kurt Busiek? Yeah. Which, again, is very much like, unashamedly, this is a period piece. Yes. Like, we're assuming, like, it starts in 1963 and maybe runs over, like, a two to three years or something yes. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting. 
Well, it's funny you mentioned Lost Generation because this is going to be another absolutely Oscar-winning segue. But uh, one of David's great points in his email was about these so-called, uh, and he's coined this, and I think it's it's very accurate, the um, Lost Generation of characters, mm. in, particularly in DC, namely the original sidekicks. Yeah. So you can call this the, the psychic paradox, if you like. But as David puts it, he says, as an example, for decades, Dick Grayson was allowed to age so that he could transform from Kig's sidekick into his, uh, into his own adult hero. However, as DC is constantly trying to preserve Bruce Wayne as forever in his mid-30s, want to put a pin in that, Dick Grayson's ageing and character progression start to create a contradiction. This is made worse by the fact that most of that character progression was fleshed out in the brilliant new new Teen Titans run by Wolfman and Perez, so no one wants to reboot that anyway, and instead it leaves Dick in a kind of limbo where his character and his place in the Bat mythos make less and less sense with each passing year. Yep. Which is an excellent point. I would also uh, take issue with the idea of Bruce Wayne being in his mid-30s, because that would once again mean that he has achieved more than I have. He had an advantage in that he was born a millionaire. That is true. I like to believe that every hero is at least a decade older than me. (laughs) At every point in my life, basically. (laughs) This is one of the reasons one of my absolute favourite superhero movies is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, because it finally gave me a Spider-Man who was older than me again. Yes. Such a good movie. I'd love to watch that again, actually. As a side note to me. (laughs) But but no, and I and I think, and again, excellent point, David, because I think this is particularly driven home in a um, in a uh, in another Grant Morrison story. So in the latter days of Morrison's Batman Incorporated series, as I've said before, the new Fifty Two Universe reboot happens mid story. Yeah, there's a couple of editorial notes at one point saying that this story takes place before New Fifty Two. Everyone's costumes change overnight between issues and they become awful. And then you now have to explain why Batman has only been Batman for five years and yet he somehow has four Robins. I know. That's just, that's just careless. It's, it's, it's ridiculous and, and borderline insulting to everyone involved, I think. This is why DC's approach with New 52 was ridiculous, trying to do like a... A reboot, but where you kept some things and like, oh no, these these stories you loved still happened, but these ones didn't. No, just just reboot it. Just do a complete fresh reboot. I love Tim Drake. Tim Drake is my absolute favourite Robin, but I'd had more respect and time for DC if they just completely rebooted from the start and just went back to Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson and Dick Grayson is Robin again. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. And, you know, I... Even when they did uh, the death of Bruce Wayne, and obviously you know that Bruce Wayne's going to come back because, of course, he's he's going to come back. It's not a true death. Nobody ever really dies in mm. comics. But like, I enjoy seeing seeing Dick Grayson as Batman, and I thought Damian Wayne made a great Robin. Like, I thought their dynamic was lovely, and I know Morrison themselves said that given the option. They would, you know, if DC had let them, they would never stop writing that Batman and Robin. Mm. Like they, they, they were saying, like honestly, could have written a carefree, uh, cartwheeling Batman and a serious, 
assassin Robin forever. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I was it, like, it, oh, it was never going to happen, but that could have been a nice kind of moment to uh, let it go. Yeah, just in, inverts the expectation and gives you a Batman who's more akin to the 60s Batman, let's be honest. And, mm. Yeah, and a grim, dark Robin. That's, uh, that is a great concept for a book. And yeah, I don't know. Stupid DC. Well, one um, just to um, and again, I feel we're not a hundred percent doing David's email justice because he has so many amazing points. But he does end with um, a three three kind of recommendations that he thinks could be used to kind of um, resolve this issue. Uh, which he offers freely from the point of re- recognizing that he does not have the ear of a DC editor, and neither do we. <laughs> but I think these would be quite interesting to see explored. So the first point is a nice simple one. Let characters age. Which is uh, a controversial opinion, but he brings up a couple of examples where this could be very interesting. He said, I want to see I want to see an aging and battle-scarred Bruce Wayne wrestle with whether he should give up being Batman and pass for mantle on or give in to the temptation of using the Lazarus Pit to remain young forever and carry on his war on crime. Which I think is, I'd I never really thought of that, but I'm like, yeah, it would actually be a temptation, wouldn't it? If you yeah, can think of it, everything. It only ever gets done as like an Elseworlds style thing or a possible, f- like Batman Beyond is is that to a degree. And that's a lot of people's favorite take on animated Batman is Batman Beyond. Mm. And I can't argue with that. It's a great show. But it's, again, just not something anyone's really leaned into since. And that's a real shame. I think um, we often talk about um, uh, DC having more so-called legacy heroes, yeah. where you can have the Flash family, the Superman family, the Bat family, all this kind of stuff. But David's second point, which is actually, I think, really interesting. I never really considered it this way. But he says, point two, use legacy to your advantage. Fully understand and respect that these are not just characters, but rather intellectual property capital I, capital P. You can do this kind of thing without endangering the IP. Bruce Wayne can age or die, but there will always be a Batman. Which I think is quite interesting. The the people wearing the mask could change, but Spider-Man will still be Spider-Man, Batman will still be Spider-Man. Batman will still be Spider-Man? What did I just say? Did you, I just you say said that? Batman will still be Spider-Man. Batman, I stand by it, PJ. Batman will still be Spider-Man. <laughs> but no, I, I, I agree. And, you know, it's comics. You can do a time travel story where they meet the older version. <laughs> or, yeah, there's so anything, many. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's funny, isn't it, PJ? You can actually do anything yeah. in comic books. You yeah. can do whatever you wanted. <laughs> like, how many Green Lanterns are we up to now? 93. Yeah, 93, yeah. Maybe, maybe more. <laughs> um, well, the final one, and I think this kind of touch upon touches upon your kind of time travel thing, PJ, is utilize the legends format to appease fans of the older characters. So, an example would be the Legends of the Dark Knight series from the nineties. Yes, I would like to see this a lot more personally. Um, I know we talked about X Men, I think, in the last issue, and we talked about the. Uh, astonishing X-Men run, mm. which uh, was kind of roughly before it died, like we're going to give a particular creative team like a six-issue miniseries to tell a story which is a, not 
as constrained by what's happening in the main title. It's just a good little story. Yeah, agreed. Like David references Legends of the Dark Knight and in particular mentions the Venom storyline, which introduces the drug that then turns up as as what Bane uses. And it was around the same time as the Vengeance of Bane storyline. So they sort of introduced Venom, introduced Bane, but in two different time periods, but they're telling both stories concurrently. And it's great. Venom is a really, really good Batman story. I, I own the trade. It's fantastic. And it's something that I feel like people are forgetting DC used to do. I think I have... You, 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 around the time a young John was discovering uh, copies of JLA in his school library, I swear one evening I was helping out with tech support at a school play and somebody was sitting in front of me and I think they were reading the Venom trade paperback. <laughs> and I remember looking over their shoulder and seeing like a little bit and it's always stuck with me. It's a really good book. I recommend I, I, yeah, I'd always like to see, I, I, always, I always felt like the way forward would be, first, I feel kind of like individual monthly issues, I think, are going to die in some capacity. Now, I'm not saying there won't still be digital content, but the economics of making like a monthly like floppy is so they're so terrible like marvel and dc are losing money on their monthly issues but making money on their movies on their tie-ins on everything i think on the one hand we're going to switch from seeing ongoing monthly titles to maybe just going straight to what we would call trade paperbacks or just straight Hmm. to graphic novels the same amount of content or other more content released uh, less frequently telling kind of complete stories. Yeah. Because we often say like, oh, you know, this is a six-parter or, it's a, you know, the story, particularly with a lot of Morrison stuff, can only really be appreciated when you read the whole thing together. And I wonder if that would be the opportunity to start telling just more kind of self-contained little stories, kind of like in the Astonishing Mold, where you know they're part of a bigger universe, but you're not expected to have to also collect 14 other titles to know what's going on i don't yeah. know if that's just optimistic thinking though i think there is an example of of you know i i think they assume that people want the characters to remain the same but i think there is a something happening right now that contradicts it now i'm not as i say reading marvel books at the moment i am not reading the current crop of spider-man books but my understanding of it is they are allowing a certain amount of aging to happen to peter parker because they've got Miles Morales. Yes, yes, of course. So they've got their teenage Spider-Man. They introduced a new Spider-Man in the Ultimate Comics at first, but then so they stopped the complete Ultimate line, and Miles was one of the few things they folded in to the Marvel Universe proper. And people accepted him because he's a great character. They gave him a movie, so the world is very aware of this character as well now. <laughs> And so they can have both Spider-Men in their comics, they can age Peter Parker up a bit, and they can tell the young Spider-Man stories with Miles. So you can do it. You just need to bring in a new version of the character, give him a movie, <laughs> and make it a good movie. And then, I, yeah, age up the original. I would I would love to think that was the direct... Like, I, I, I think I still have the fear in my head 
that even that situation is not safe from a from a retcon. Oh God, no. I guess nothing is safe from a retcon, but like I wish they could have some kind of editorial edict where they're like, look, this is how we're doing it, and from now on until a change of staff, we are going to have two Spider-Men, one old, one young. Same as, you know, and uh, uh, yeah, and I guess kind of recognizing it in universe is one way of doing it. You know, like they are coexisting, they are different characters, but yeah, it would be interesting also if they just went for, um, yeah, just publishing Miles Morales books and publishing Spider-Man books and, and, and just acknowledging that they're works of fiction and they don't have to. Yeah. It doesn't have to make sense. I, w- I was about to make another suggestion and then I remembered that Marvel had already tried it and it was real, real, real bad, which was, uh, you know, bring in an alternate reality version, younger version of the <laughs> character. But they did that with Iron Man in the late 90s and it was awful. So <laughs> I honestly wouldn't wouldn't put it past that happening in the movies. No, Teen Tony could come back. Oh god, what was that? What was I keep forgetting what it was called. Was it the crossing? Yeah. Avengers the Crossing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was the one. Yeah. Well, you, you heard it here first, folks. That could happen. I, I once uh, for a site I used to write for did a list of the of stories Marvel should never attempt to adapt or even go anywhere near for their movies and the crossing was my number one pick for just oh, just wow. pretend it never happened please because it's one of the worst things i've ever read you see i do want to read it now oh i read as a piece of like a historical text for comics in the mid 90s it's fascinating and i recommend reading it from that point of view but it is also one of the worst crossovers or comic stories that i've ever had the misfortune to endure it's um it's all very it's uh kang related isn't it there's a lot of kang in it yes yeah and it it makes an absolute mockery of iron man's entire entire career as a superhero Mm. because that was the thing when uh busick did um Avengers Forever. He had probably the self-inflicted but incredible task of trying to make sense of every weird moment of time travel from Avengers history. Well, he wanted to try and fix it. That was the goal of Avengers Forever. Busick sort of said, "This, this is this makes no sense. There've been some terrible stories. I'm going to fix this." And he did it. He did it. Yeah, it shouldn't be it. possible. It's not his fault that subsequent writers ruined it. Um. David, thank you for your incredible email. Um, I should say uh, very quickly, uh, David has made a recommendation of a, another title from around this time that Morrison's JLA turned up in, which was the short-lived series Vexed by Keith Giffen, uh, which has an appearance from this incarnation of the JLA, which we, we might need to check out at some point. And finally, there is the issue of what nickname Dave gets. I think... Uh... I think we got to give him the one he requests. To be honest, I see no reason not to. Uh, so, uh, Dave, the anti-monitor young. <laughs> Thank you. God, oh, oh, crying out loud. I'm sorry, David. My knees are sweating. That's how hot it is in here. <laughs> David Antimonitor Yost, thank you for your incredible email. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so, PJ, um, 
Yeah, I know. I know. I was like, oh, let's keep it punchy. Let's keep. Let's focus on the moment. Uh, but we 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 had so many good things to talk about. Um, I apologize. That's all right. But, I, to be honest, I think this is going to be a, this this issue we're looking at today. It's pretty much all action. So <laughs> I think we'll be getting through the issue a little quicker than we do most. Yeah, it's all good, listener. But please forgive us if we, uh, you know, because the page starts to catch fire beneath our fingers, mm. and we need to just kind of hustle. Um, so yeah, today we are reading World War Three Part Two, aka Issue Thirty Seven of the original uh, run on JLA, and the first issue of the twenty first century. This came out in January two thousand. There you go. What a way to start the year. <laughs> so picture the scene. You've just rung in a new millennium. You know, uh, you've chucked out your your kind of um, slap bracelets. And you've what was big in two thousand, PJ? I I stopped paying attention quite a few years before that. I don't know the Smurfs. Did people still like the Smurfs? Uh, you were people snapped their Smurfs go pop CDs. You were excited because you read on altavisca.com about the upcoming X Men movie. I mean, I was excited about the upcoming X Men movie. I'll give you that. Does that work? Okay, so yeah, in in the in the height of all that giddy excitement, you go to your your comic shop and you pick up this issue. PJ, what is what has just happened? Where are we? What, what's the situation? There's a new Injustice gang, and Mageddon's on his way, so it's bad time for there to be a new Injustice gang. But the new Injustice gang, they don't care, and Lex Luthor's just blowing up the Watchtower. Yes, and. Um... Yeah, we, we see it. Um, the, the watchtower is exploding on the surface of the moon as we speak. And we um, appear to be not entirely inside her head. But the narrator is taking us through the last moments on Earth, or on the, on the moon, of Huntress. As she is blasted out into the cold void of space um, due to the explosion. Yeah, you get a, a panel of Zauriel reaching out to try and grab her, but also he needs to keep himself hooked up to the the watchtower. And Huntress is sucked out in the vacuum of space alongside oh, sorry, loads uh, of bits blo- of paper. Sorry, PJ, PJ, um, blown out. Same thing. I'm being very pedantic. Same thing. Uh, with lots of paper, a spoon, a can, and a Green Lantern mug. Yes, I like that. I like that Kyle has a branded mug. Oh, you nice. would. You would. And as she is, you know, not having powers, not being a god, not being super, super fast or strong, as um, as the Huntress is, is kind of, um, you know, tumbling through the void of space, her life is um, flashing before her eyes. And, uh, you know, she relives her 17th birthday, her 18th, uh, 21, 23. And we have a lovely kind of moment here where the captions go, like her, like her past catching up with her all at once, and it's suddenly that awful moment where Helena, the huntress, realises she's out of oxygen, out of time, and it's all gone by so fast. Sorry, John, you missed the best caption on the page. And oh, I'm sorry, that's, I did. That's where I? Morrison describes the moon as the most monstrous thing she's ever seen, like a terrible frisbee. <laughs> and again, it's those little moments which I neglected, these little moments that you know PJ keeps his honest about, which show that there is poetry in the pages of even the silliest superhero comic. A terrible frisbee! 
But yeah, it's she's out of time and it's all gone all gone by so fast. Like a speeding bullet. And as we turn the page, PJ. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah, a double page spread. I can't remember the last time we had a double page spread, but there it is, and it is just Superman flying in, catching Huntress, and well, lopping locking lips with her so he can breathe oxygen into her. And uh yeah, um she looks about as shocked as you would expect, but you know, it's Superman saving someone, which is basically his most favourite thing in the world after <laughs> punching people, punching bad guys very hard. If he can save someone by punching a bad guy very hard, what a good day he's had. And if he can say and if he can if he can save someone by punching a bad guy and kissing that bad guy to save their life, he would. Damn it, because he's Superman. He would. <laughs> uh, and this is where we also get the, the title and the credits. So again, no no subtitle. This is just World War Three Part 2 with uh, Grant Morrison writer, Howard Porter penciler, John Dell Inker, Ken Lopez letterer, Pat Garrahy colorist, Heroic Age separator, Tony Bernard associate editor, Dan Raspler editor. Yeah, and um, as we turn the page, um, Superman uh, smashes uh, back into the watchtower. Um, one can only assume uh, protecting... A huntress in uh in in the process and uh yeah uh he he tells her to uh you know take it easy and gather her wits with plastic man who is here and has become a chair and uh to take a few deep breaths yeah then he apologizes for startling her but she needed oxygen and he says uh, luthor's recruited new injustice gang uh there's a new queen bee i'm just gonna get straight down to business and huntress mutters that the general is unbeatable and superman just takes off and says I'll handle the general. I love how Superman is all business. You know what I mean? Like he he's like, look, here is the threat. You know, we have I know exactly what I need to do. I am a chess piece on this board. But also I'm gonna take a moment to just make sure that you are you are absolutely okay before I, I get on with it. Like he could have just dumped her anywhere. Mm. Like he dropped her off with plastic man. Which may not seem like a kindness, but actually, I think is. Yeah, I think because Plastic Man can make himself something comfy, <laughs> and he is surprisingly resourceful. <laughs> so, I, you know, Superman is always thinking, which is um, which is what I admire. And um, yeah, Huntress uh, takes a moment to uh, uh, catch her breath um, and to uh, and to radio to see if anyone is out there. Yeah, yeah, but then. We get a lovely shot of Queen Bee, who's basically saying that this station is... I'm not going to do that. It's ours. <laughs> and she sends out a signal to summon her swarm. You know, PJ, I know you can do the um, Mr. Mixplicalict. Uh, Thank you, yes. I know you can do the backwards talk, so you don't have to prove anything by doing um, bee talk. Thank you. appreciate that. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, the... Um, you know, uh, Zazala, the Queen Bee, uh, she has begun the summoning. And uh, she reports into Luther and says, you know, uh, we've uh, secured the Central Dome and the main command centre. Are you there, Luther? Answer us, because apparently he's being a bit tardy in responding, PJ. Yeah, and Luther basically, we, we cut to a, a panel of him sitting in the shadows. He just says, yeah, I'm, I'm here, forgive me. My thoughts were elsewhere. It seems as though someone... Never mind. And obviously... 
Luthor doesn't know, but we do. This is the Mageddon influence. And here's a, I've got a question for you, PJ. Um, in the next panel, we see Batman, uh, you know, doing his thing, you know, um, saving someone from, you know, a thug. And we see the moon kind of filling the sky mm. high above him. And Luther says, our intentions should now be obvious to everyone, I trust. And my question to you, PJ, is I know that uh, in a, I think, a later part of the story, uh, a random person comments that you can see the watchtower burning on the moon. And I was wondering, are we meant to be seeing something on the moon at this point, which has maybe caught Batman's attention? Or is it is it just more of a kind of an evocative panel, do you think? I think it's an evocative panel, and I think it's it's simply there as a transition from outer space to Gotham. Hmm. Just to show what Batman's up to and where yeah. he is, basically. Yeah, because this is still no man's land. This is a Gotham that is still ruined by the quake, and Batman is is fighting to make his city just somewhere people can live without being threatened all the time. You see, at that point, because as I've said 101 flipping times, this was the first DC comic and the first JLA comic I ever picked up. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea that but that the Gotham I'm seeing is meant to have had an earthquake. I just assumed it looked this bad normally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, don't move there. But also in shot, PJ, is the clock tower where Oracle normally hangs out. And if we turn the page, PJ, we find that she's not alone. Yeah, so we get a couple of speech bubbles coming from her watchtower saying, I have no morals, I have no pity, no compassion. And then we're inside the watchtower and it's a close-up of Prometheus. And I do love this line of, well, I suppose I have. (laughs) Nobody's all bad after all, but I I don't use them very often. And I... (laughs) I just love that level of self-awareness where he's like, look, I've probably got some compassion somewhere in here because I am a person, a fully rounded three-dimensional person, but I like being evil. It's the... And I think... And, and, you know, Prometheus says as much in a page or so um, in his own works, but it's it's how Prometheus' mind works where, A, he says something threatening... Then he makes a joke about it. But then you realise that like beneath the joke, he's at like he there's a there's like a there's like three layers to his dialogue. Like he says what you think he says something straightforward, then he undermines it, and then you realise that the truth is actually a little scarier because he is almost so sociopathic that mm. he he really would just kill her and probably wouldn't feel much of it at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh Morrison writes Prometheus so well, and it's the utter tragedy of Prometheus, isn't it? The tragedy of Prometheus and the <laughs> sidekick paradox, because, yeah, like, Prometheus is so good in this book that how did we not get more? Well, we did get more. How did we not get more good content? Why would you read this and not want to make more good content with Prometheus? I do not know. Bad writers? Yeah, maybe. Someone hired him. But I like this next moment as well, because Prometheus just says to Oracle, it would be easy to kill you now. And Oracle says, Barbara says, well, it wouldn't be easy, but yeah, you you could do it. Sort of the acknowledgement there that 
she used to be Batgirl. Yes, she's in a wheelchair, but she can handle herself and she will fight back. Mm. Mm. No, 100%. Like, you know, that bat training kind of stands for something. Yeah. Um, And, uh, you know, she, but, you know, she tries to talk to him, you know, kind of says, well, look, you know, you know, you don't, you don't realize this, but, you know, you're, you're being influenced by alien technology. You know, something called Mageddon is coming and um, it's driving people to, you know, fight and kind of like, you know, uh, hate each other. And, uh, you know, we have to stop it. Uh, and uh, Prometheus, you know, just assumes she's trying to, you know, stall or manipulate him because, mm. you know, he says, well, look, the world is going to end, but it's going to be it's going to be our doing the Injustice gang. Yeah, and then he says, so the shoes you're wearing, they're worn, they're a fairly recent style, so the chair, you've not always been in that, that's a new addition. What do you miss the most? And he's trying to get in her head, and he's very clever. Yeah, because he's, he's also doing the Batman routine. Yes. Like, he's, he's not as brilliant a detective as Batman, because who could be? But there's something there. You know, he's he is by no means an idiot, and and that's what makes him kind of dangerous more so than his technology and abilities. Yeah, yeah, but Babs, she know she knows the best, so she's she's on to him straight away and just says, "I don't live in the past." You know, do you miss your baby carriage? And then Prometheus <laughs> just keeps on trying at it. He calls her the girl geek on the internet, flirting with the super boys, acting self reliant. She brings up Mageddon again. So, look, the files on Mageddon are on that computer. You could go and have a look. Stop insulting me. And she... Yeah, she acknowledges that, like... Look, I get that you are incredibly smart and arrogant. And maybe you just don't like the idea of something more powerful than you being able to control you. But, you know, please look at the evidence. And then we get this amazing line from Prometheus and honestly like an amazing little panel where we get kind of like a close-up of his eye beneath his visor and it's just something about the way Porter draws it in this panel because there's like this weird kind of green filter across the glass but like he just looks so deranged Mm -hmm. in this panel and I love this line he says like you know sure I'm smart but it's that little twisted nerve inside you know and I've always loved that. I've always thought about that line because it perfectly describes his his insanity in a way. Yeah. Like he's he's not crazy. He's twisted. It's a very it's a different thing. Yeah, as I say, there's a level of self-awareness to him that that is terrifying, quite frankly. Yeah. No, he he knows exactly what he is and he's kind of okay with it. But then comes the but but he's offering a kind of well, a devil's bargain, really, because he says, look, you know, I, I, I have technology that no one else does. I can interface machines with the human nervous system. I could make you walk again. And you just get this, we get this close-up of Barbara's face where he says, you know, you and I could skip out of here hand-in-hand hand into the sunset, spit on your JLA membership card, and shut down your equipment. And I think... He means it. He would do that. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a it, it's a selfish act, but it's a selfless act done selfishly. And <laughs> yeah, the next panel then is is it's it, across the whole top of the page, but Barbara is very small on one side of it, just in shadow, as she just says no, 
no thank you, Prometheus. So she's being, she sort of acknowledges the offer in a way and is polite to him about it in turning him down, but at the same time recognises that she's got bigger things to deal with. And then we get this kind of, well, you know, ugly element of Prometheus where he then just instantly goes to kill her. Yep. You know, and it makes a joke in the process, like a, a, a kind of just pure sociopathy. Like he just, yeah, just I don't think really sees people as people in in that same way. Yeah, he just instantly launches himself at, at Barbara and throws her out of her chair and through the clock face of the watchtower. But importantly, Barbara manages to damage his helmet. Yes, and I have to say, this is one of those kind of like slight blink and you'll miss it kind of moments. Yes. Um, which I, I think I didn't pick up on on my first kind of read through. But yeah, she, I don't know if she um, throws something or she gets like a a punch in. It's, it's quite a complex shot that I think Morrison was asking Porter to depict here. And maybe like, oh, I don't know, there could have been a bit more, it could have been a bit more obvious in shot. But yeah, one of his antenna. It's kind of broken off his helmet, I guess. I've assumed that as as he threw her, she grabbed it and snapped it off. Is is my assumption, but yeah, it's it's not. It's just sort of falling away from his helmet as she is thrown out of the panel and yeah, out of the watchtower. And this amazing panel of just the glass front of the clock like exploding as her body comes flying out. It, it, it's it's a small. She's a small figure in shot, but it it looks great. It's so dramatic, and I think it's helped by the way Gotham is, because there's <laughs> rubble and fire everywhere. I think if this were a neater Gotham, it would it would lack an amount of drama to a degree. It's such a great kind of scene transition because it's just left there like a mm. perfect cliffhanger. Um, as we cut back to the Watchtower, and we have Steel and Superman just flying towards us uh, with countless bullets just ricocheting off their bodies um because yeah they've got a general to deal with yeah and superman just shouts full power steel and steel's like full power that's our strategy and the general starts ranting as superman just flies through him <laughs> like superman bursts through the general's torso and comes out the other side covered in whatever the purple gunk that is the shaggy man's blood is and it's interesting to see Superman resorting to what is essentially lethal force because he knows he it, it will at best just slow the general down. Yeah, yeah. But the general's, well, he's not fine. He's got a big hole in him, but he's still going and Steel's got, <laughs> Steel's got like his hand on the general's face as the general's mouth is open and Steel's going to smash his hammer into the general's mouth. But then the general bites down on Steel's gauntleted hand, which snaps the hammer in two. And yeah, Steel is is basically down. He's in pain. And then Queen Bee takes control of his brain. Now, I would say, uh, and I, I, I think I, I don't really take issue with this page, but I have to bring up this page as having created problems for DC down the line. Hmm. Because... We get this scene where Steel essentially gets his hand bitten by the general. And spoilers, later on in this in this book, 
um, we discover that he hasn't lost his hand. Like he he just his gauntlet got crushed. He you know but, but the gauntlet saved his hand from being destroyed. Mm. However, I know for a fact in the pages of fifty two, not the new fifty two, but fifty two, the year long series, Steel has a robotic hand because the general bit his old one off. I had forgotten about that. And I think it's honestly because someone in editorial didn't know a hundred percent what had happened in this in on this page. They could have gone back and read it. Yeah, it's it's um it's a funny it's a funny page. Like I I, I like what I'm seeing. Like it's an amazing picture of the general. Like amazing at one point. But like um, there's a weird thing where just in that one panel, Steel seems a lot smaller than he should be. Perhaps. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, the the general seems massive like a lot bigger but i think this is just dramatic license isn't it oh yeah yeah and and i'm fine with that it's a hell of a picture Mm. but yeah so um thank you morrison for creating a a slew of problems for dc editorial down the line because i guess they didn't pay attention as to whether i guess clearly they looked at this page and then didn't read the rest of world war three yeah anyway so yeah skeel bless him has now has now been um, mind controlled by the hypno pollen of um, psycho pollen. I tell a lie of the queen bee. So yeah, we've lost another soldier. Yep, yep. And then we cut back to Prometheus, who's basically downloading all of the Justice League's files to to a disc, but he can't get it into his helmet. He needs to grab a spare one because that one's taken a hit. But he does say, I "Told you, Luthor, you just needed the right team." And then he talks about how he might be enjoying it too much and that maybe something else is getting its kicks. Uh, but Which obviously we know is Mageddon. Yes, indeed. And you also get like... Um, uh, he says, you know, you, you see in his language to Luther like how kind of like insulting he is towards Barbara. Mm. So like, again, you kind of just see like beneath the civility he he can display... He he can just be very brutal. It's and the cruel. language he uses is actually gross. Yeah, um, like I, I honestly I this isn't. I don't think this is Morrison being insulting. This is genuinely what this character thinks. I don't think it's a line you'd be able to put in this comic today. No, um, no, I agree. But I, I and... don't. I don't think it's. Um, I get why. But I, I again, I th- I think it's in the context. I'm all right with it being here. Yes, because I I think it's an ugly it's an ugly series of words coming out of an ugly person. Yeah. So I think it is okay in the context of it. But yeah, no, I agree, and it just kind of shows. Yeah, I guess I guess you just never really. Yeah, it's so hard to actually work out what Prometheus would actually do in any situation. He's like a snake, basically. Yeah. Um. But we also see that Barbara is alive. Yeah, she's managing to cling to the hands of the clock outside, uh, Doc Brown in Back to the Future style. <laughs> um, <laughs> even got the lightning bolt there. and She's clinging for life out there. Prometheus is still trying to get hold of Luthor, who's slow in responding, but does eventually say headquarters have been gutted, communications and teleport link have been severed. And I also like how 
despite his incredible intelligence and despite his technology and despite having seemingly planned everything because he is the anti-Batman, we see already we've seen two massive flaws in Prometheus's actions because his helmet's been broken and for some reason he didn't have his own backup lying around. And secondly, he presumably hasn't checked to see whether Barbara is alive or not. Yeah. It's, 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 it's pure cockiness, like yeah. pure arrogance, basically. It really is. It really is. But uh, yeah, Luthor, who's still in shadow, uh, says, <laughs> membership scattered, let's tax their remaining energies to breaking point, and radios to Queen Bee, who says, yep, signal's transmitted, and her drone hordes are holding <laughs> position. I'm just laughing like an idiot, because I, I, I know what's coming, and... Mm. As we turn the page, we see we're out in space and we see a colossal fleet of uh, B spaceships flying towards Earth as we hear the Queen Bee's voice, swarming has begun. Um, It's insane and brilliant and I love it. (laughs) It is... It is superb. And these ships are so good. I love the designs of these. They're like... Well, they're, they're just like big wasps, basically, but with in spaceship form. It's great. Porter's done a superb job with these. Oh, it's it's so much fun. Like, it, it's... Yeah, I love it. It's everything a comic should be. And... Uh, you know, thankfully, there are a few more heroes on the ground, and we, and we see Huntress and Plastic Man uh, kind of, you know, checking a computer screen, looking at uh, the radar, and, uh, yeah, seeing for their own eyes that, yeah, apparently, um, if the machine is accurate, Earth is under attack from killer space bees. And as Plastic Man turns into a bee man, just to get the point, about, the point <laughs> across, he says, just when you think there can't possibly be anything funny about interstellar warfare. <laughs> and Huntress just puts him down instantly he says there isn't and he says alright okay let's save the planet then and Huntress orders Plastic Man to find Zauriel um, life support systems are shutting down they need anybody and then as Plastic Man leaves Huntress is like okay who's in charge here now am I in charge? <laughs> <laughs> as a green glow comes from off panel and she says oh Green Lantern thank and as she turns around, we see Kyle walking towards her. And unfortunately, he is under the control of the Queen Bee. And he says, no singular mind, no will, but that of her royal highness. But he says, like, highness, you threaten our unity. Because it's easy to forget, but Queen Bee did shoot Kyle with one of her darts last issue. Yes, were you all paying attention? <laughs> um, and before we turn the page, because we have a lovely scene coming up, uh, I would just like to say that I love how Plastic Man turns into a little motorbike yeah. to disappear. And I also love how he says, let me slip into the woodwork again, see what's cooking. And I just love that this is actually where Plastic Man's kind of strengths come into play because there would be no point in Plastic Man directly confronting any member of the Injustice gang. They'd probably each be able to defeat him. But his strength would be in being flexible and unseen and literally just kind of worming his way through through the ruined watchtower. Like, he'd be perfect for, like, spying and uh, mm. 
uh, espionage and all that. Brilliant, brilliant characterization. Yeah, it's really, really cool. It is really cool. But then on the next page, Kyle is confronting Huntress as basically talking about constructing a hive and that Huntress is either going to die or serve the Queen Bee. But Huntress tries to appeal to him. And I feel like this is Helena using her teacher voice. <laughs> she says, you're not an insect, you're a human being, you're Green Lantern, the, you wield the most powerful weapon in the universe, your willpower is stronger than a bunch of bug pheromones. And then she says, and if it isn't, I'm going to shoot you in the head. <laughs> and... I think this is when young John just fell in love with both Huntress and Kyle. Yeah. Because, like, I'd never really seen a character like Green Lantern before. And I just love how Porter draws him on this page. Uh, but also, yeah, Huntress is just incredible here. And um, we see Kyle kind of going like, uh, uh, Her Majesty dictates, takes, uh, oh, oh, no, oh, oh, bugs, bugs and honey in my brain. And then... Um, He's also manifesting like uh, hundreds of um, scalpels mm. out of the energy to dissect her, and then they all just vanish, and uh, he beats it through pure willpower. Yeah, and then Huntress walks over and, and pulls Queen Bee's dart out of out of the back of his neck, and he says, "Oh, she whacked you with this." Uh, Superman said, "Injustice, gang. Do you know about these people? I can't think on this scale." Yes, and of course she wasn't around when the league battled uh, the previous incarnation of the Injustice Gang. This is all new to her. And I, I have always, always, always loved this picture of Kyle here while he's kind of getting his bearings again. And he just goes like, oh, hardcore bad guys. Gotta stop him, man. Where's Batman? We're totally cut off from everybody. And he just looks so cool in this panel. Yeah, he does. But I also love that his first instinct is where's Batman? We need our brain. Where is our brain? Um... Can I just say, like, I, as somebody who first first JLA story he'd ever read, I was like, oh, this scene, of course Huntress is on the team. She's earned her place. Like, I can see as a reader why she is absolutely essential to the team. And I just, it's amazing to me that, I don't know, we'll, we'll, we'll get to this in time, but like why editorial didn't think the same way. Hmm. I yeah. feel Morrison would have surely won everyone over at this point with their case that Huntress deserved to be part of this. I ah, uh, we'll talk about it in a, a few weeks' time. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll I get have there. a slightly different take on it. Oh, interesting, interesting. Bucks, um, you might be asking yourself, PJ, where's Superman? John, where's Superman? Well, um, it's an amazing panel, um, Bucks. God, I feel for him. Um, we see uh, a red streak blasting out of the Watchtower Dome onto the surface of the uh, the moon. And then we see the general just grinding Superman's face into the ground and Superman kind of screaming. Yeah, and I love that because we're on the surface of the moon, the general has a speech bubble, but there are no letters in it. We do not know what he is saying. <laughs> It's incredible. Like, uh, I, you can tell when Morrison's having fun. I think you can also tell when Porter is having fun. Because yeah. the general just looks amazing here. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, again, he's, I, I do wonder if there's a slight size-changing element to him. Because he, he does, again, look a different size here. But I also don't care because it's so good. 
Yeah, or <laughs> yeah, or as you said, it's artistic license. Yeah. And if you're going to draw a picture of this great, then that's fine by me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so um, the good guys are rallying, and we have Kyle and Huntress uh, kind of racing their way through the Watchtower. And uh, Kyle is flying, and he's also made a nice little kind of um, flying carpet-style platform for Huntress to ride on, which I which I like a lot. Hmm. Yeah, and he says uh, that he thinks that they came in through the kitchens. He was trying to drown the weird Old Testament cereals Ariel brings in in maple syrup, and then the bad guys are in his brain. And um, we get a point where uh, Kyle is floating over like a big um, a big opening in the ground, and um, he says, "I think they came up from here." And Huntress says, "Well, yeah, this." This place still has life support, so that makes sense. And he says, let me check out for death traps. If I stumble into a nest of super bees, you'll hear the buzzing. And yeah, I just love... It's not about one character being better than the other or anything like that, but it's just an acknowledgement that their power set works in very different ways. Yeah. And big alien bees are probably more of a Kyle thing, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. And then we get a panel of Queen Bee radioing into Luthor saying, which which city shall we install our hive in? Uh, and Steel is the one under her control who says New York as Kyle comes down the entryway just behind her this is the first time I've ever noticed that Kyle is in this panel oh really oh wow interesting PJ yeah yeah I've never noticed that before it's great I love it I, yeah I love it's a small thing but I love like the kind of weightlessness of it yeah Um, but yeah but then we see that um, there's another person here and it's Luther sitting in his kind of battle chair his action chair um only um there's something a bit wrong about him um as he greets kyle and says ah young man we've been expecting you and your ring join us and we can see yeah, there's a it's big... very uh geiger i would say this yeah because there's like tendrils almost like roots around his shoulders and across his face and clearly the the beginnings of a sphere forming on his head and if you've read the prologue issue and what the justice league found in bell reef prison i think you already know where this is going yeah like it's so funny like i've read this story so many times in my life and i keep forgetting about the eyeball bit and <laughs> oh, it's so weird it's, i love it it's one of the things that i remember most because i think it's just the iconography of it of what it becomes and and luthor with this thing on him is it's just one of as you say it's so bizarre and so weird and so grotesque and somewhat gonzo that it just stayed <laughs> in my brain it's very morrison yeah it's very Morrison, and that's, I think, just one of the weird little touches that elevates this beyond a kind of stereotypical superhero comic. It just, it becomes a little odd somehow. Yep, yep. <laughs> but then we get, uh, as Kyle stumbles into this, frankly, bizarre scene, we see Huntress up above, and a familiar shadow on the wall behind her. And she turns... But before she can react, Prometheus has already knocked her unconscious. Yep. Yep. And then he stands over her body and says, Okay, so according to the files, you're the wild card, a psycho Batman's trying to tame. And then 
There is a shadow on Prometheus's cloak. <laughs> a very familiar shadow and two speech bubbles that just say, Prometheus, talk to me. And this is a moment where in the animated series, you'd hear that little fanfare. We all know the one. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I would love to see a World War Three animation. Oh, yes. Yes, please. Can you imagine? Oh my God. But again, another cliffhanger, PJ, because I, I wonder who it could be. Um... But as we turn the page, we cut back to Superman and the General as they um, smash through the ceiling down into the JLA uh, kind of meeting room. And uh, it's like a kind of wonderful um, greatest hits tour of all the um, the (laughs) settings from the series, basically. Yeah, yeah. And the General is is raging. He's shouting about how the Justice League stuck him on the asteroid without court-martial. Superman tries to reason with him and says, General, you don't understand. But the General just smashes him through the conference table, ripping it in half, shouting, damn your justice. And then they fall through the conference room and into the monitor womb. Um, Also a nice little touch that even when uh, the General is beating up Superman... Uh, they are both just passing effortlessly through the holographic earth which floats above the table like it's not even there. (laughs) Yeah, because they are bigger than the planet Earth. And, yeah, we come tumbling down into the monitor room like the ceiling just kind of collapsing as we are assaulted on all sides by news reports kind of flooding in from all across the world. Everything the JLA would normally be saving us from uh, and it's, it's it's like war, like everywhere across the planet, like nations are, are readying their troops and going to war. It's like there's a bloodlust across the entire planet. And Supermag's horrified and he just goes like, like, dear Lord, General, can't you see what's happening? While we fight pointlessly, the Earth is inching closer to global catastrophe. Look. Yeah, but the general just starts shouting, let it all burn, burn it all down, I'll be standing in the ruins. And you get this amazing close-up of his face as he starts to froth at the mouth and just shouts, mine is the face of tomorrow. And it's chilling. It, it is. Like, and I, 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 having read this story so many times, I've probably never even picked up on the fact that while they are literally fighting the Warbringer in this story, Super, uh, Morrison's very big on the symbolism, the magical symbolism of Superman. Like uh, they talk about in their autobiography, how the superhero was the only thing that could save us from the bomb, from the fear of nuclear apocalypse. Like growing up, he they were terrified of it, hmm. but superheroes presented like a brighter option. And it just occurred to me, like we, it's almost like. The general has become the avatar of war in yeah. this moment, and yeah. we are literally having Superman beating up war, <laughs> having an ideological co- conversation with war. And uh, yeah, I, I, I can't, I can't see that as being coincidental. It's like a much better written version of Superman Four: The Quest for Peace. <laughs> hey, now this scene would be improved if the general had a slightly different costume <laughs> and a big bouffant hairdo. I'm just saying, something to think about. <laughs> but PJ, PJ, is all hope lost? Question well, mark. And holy, just, oh, this issue, this issue. We turn the page. As a ship approaches the watchtower, it lands within the watchtower and a familiar looking speech bubble says, 
Sorry I took so long to respond, Plastic Man. Then we get a familiar set of blue boots stepping out of the ship as the speech bubbles say, I'd like to formally declare my return to active duty, my friends. And then just a glorious most-of-the-page image of John Jones, the Martian Manhunter, his eye glowing red as he says, this is John Jones activating full telepathic link. Counter-offensive has begun. And it's a shame that that image is so undermined by the recent issues that Jean's already appeared in. Yeah, because it's like, you kind of forget that Jean has been gone for a very long time. Mm. Like, I'm looking at my spreadsheet now, and technically we've not seen him, excluding that weird little story, we've not seen him since the end of one million, really. So he's been gone, well, I don't know, kind of like, uh, we last saw him in maybe... DC 1 million, so we've had 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 13 issues since then, over a year of no John. Not yep. counting the um, the guilty story. Well, there's more than one, because he's in Mark Miller's Amazo story, and then Mark Wade's Locust story. Oh, God, he is. You could forgive, say Sorry, that could I'm be a flashback. Mad. That's fine. That could be a flashback to before Jean went on leave. But then he's in the Spectre story from two issues ago. Yeah, I realise I just completely undermined my own point because, yes, he has made a lot of appearances since then. But really, Peter, it feels like he's been gone a long time. And he, that, it really should feel like he has. It should, but because th- he's he's in it two issues ago, it just doesn't. And I feel like that does really somewhat undermine the power of this moment to the point where I was like, oh, has he been gone when I first read this? <laughs> yeah, I... Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Like, I... And given the way Morrison works, it's like Morrison had written the script for all these parts, clearly. You know, maybe even in January 2000, they'd already finished the entire run. So it was definitely an editorial decision to put the guilty where, where they did. But... It is weird. Yeah. It is weird in hindsight. But, oh well, it's still a hell of a last page for that issue. And again, like, not really knowing much about Jean at that point in history, other than his appearance in The Guilty, and assuming that he was at least, oh, I don't know, a little psychic. Um, that's all I kind of knew about him, and I was, I was, I was very intrigued to know more about him. Yeah, and his his appearance does feel like a moment that turns the tables in the league's favour. It just he he he's that guy. Do you get those? Do you get those moments with PJ where it's like uh, I don't know if this is um, technically jamais vu, the opposite of déjà vu, but <laughs> I'm looking at uh, Jean now, and I'm like, here is a character that I've read about for years, who I have seen in countless drawings, adaptations, whatever. And I suddenly feel in this moment that I'm seeing him as if for the first time. And I'm suddenly just struck by how kind of weird he looks, but also kind of brilliant at the same time. Like, there's something very iconic about his design. And I'm just suddenly like going like, oh yeah, Jean Jongs exists. I'm looking at him right now on the page. Yeah. no, And he's weird and wonderful, and I love it. He's weird and wonderful, and the way Porter draws draws him, I think artists can, and you know, Jean's a shapeshifter. There's no set design, but Porter in particular draws him big, like the size of Superman. Mm. And 
I think it's my favourite depiction of Jean because he feels powerful. And he is, and he should. But I think it's Porter is the artist, in my opinion, who just gets that the, the most with Jean. No, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And... Um... Yeah, I, I I think he's often actually underrated how uh, uh un, how well Porter draws him. Actually, you know when you you think of John as being quintessentially a JLA character, perhaps more so than a solo character. He is the heart and soul of of the team, and I, in a weird way, it's kind of like at Marvel where they one of the tests for artists. Anecdotally, they'd always say that like um, it was how well you can draw the thing. And I feel like over at DC, it should be how well can you draw Jean? Because mm. I think that would be a real benchmark for for gauging how good you'd be on JLA, perhaps. When I think of Jean, it's usually one of Porter's panels from this run that comes to mind. More often than not, it's one of two. It's that one, or it's the one where he's flying out of the flames towards Asmodel. Oh my god! Yes, yeah. It's funny as we were talking about how good Porter is. I was, I was alternating in my brain between World War Three and yeah, that one story where he was fighting Asmodel. Because <laughs> it's clear that Morrison has an incredible infinity and love, uh, affinity and love of Jean. Yeah, given the respect with which Jean is written, and I think also Porter enjoys it as well. I think Porter is having as much fun as Morrison in this story. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, what what do you think of it, PJ? As an issue, I love it. It's it's basically an action piece. It's it's a big fight scene, you know. Mm. Um, but it also moves the story along. And I think my favourite thing about it is, you know, you can is how you 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 can feel Mageddon's presence in the story. Mageddon isn't you don't see Mageddon. You don't even see. Obviously, we've got uh, Wonder Woman, Barda, and Metron off investigating the coming of Mageddon. The League are aware that it's about to happen. But other than a couple of mentions, that's pretty much it. And then obviously what's going on with Luthor at the end. But it's mainly just a feeling, a sense of dread that pervades the issue that this thing is on its way and it is affecting these characters. But it's that's all background and atmosphere stuff to a great fight between the JLA and the Injustice gang. And I just, oh, it's so good. It's so, so good. I, yeah, no, I agree. So so well said, PJ. I I I love this issue. Um, I think, as we said in a, a previous episode, it's, it's it's strange for us to be breaking down this story issue by issue because it works so well as one continuous story in yeah. a trade. Yeah, uh, you almost don't notice where the issue breaks are. Um, I would hold up this issue and and, and generally just everything that's going on here as. Such a good example of how to do a 22-page issue right. Because even though, as you say, it is a lot of action, it's a lot of spectacle, it never feels cheap and it never feels like I'm being robbed by buying this issue because there are so many detailed little moments, so many wonderful and underrated little character bits that just shows that even when it's two super-powered characters beating the crap out of each other, Mm. Morrison cared Porter cared it wasn't just insert fight scene and I, and I think it's just it's, it's masterfully done, really do yeah, no, I agree it's, it's, it's a writer and artist working in perfect symbiosis 
and at the top of their games. No, a hundred percent. And I and I think um, I know I often rag on uh, the particularly the later issues of Bendis's very long running skint on the Avengers, but you could pick up a whole issue in a five part six part story. And nothing would happen in an issue, mm. like like just the compression of the way that time was dilated or extended just meant that over the course of twenty two pages, nothing happened <laughs> to drive the story forward. And I feel like everything here is driving the story forward while telling us something about the characters or the stakes. Like it, you're getting so much value out of every every single panel in this story. It's it's great. It's it's um. Yeah, I again, I I liked it at the time. I I, I continue to like it. It is, it's very well done. Yes. Yeah. No, I I agree. I agree. And oh, I'm so excited for the next issue. They're all so good at this point, BJ. They're all so good. Um, I and I know this is pure pure nostalgia for me because like this story meant so much to me when I first encountered it. But like. I don't think it's entirely rose-tinted goggles. I think there's no. something good going on here. It's it's very good storytelling, I think. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think, you know, the fact that I'm excited to reach these moments and that they still hold up today, like, you know, it's it's no spoiler to say that the next issue is the rematch everyone was waiting for at this point between Batman and Prometheus. And it does not disappoint. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, God, like, talk about cliffhangers. Like, you know... I mean, that shadow could have been anyone's PJ. It had the but, pointy cowl. It was definitely Batman. But you know, you know what's coming. Like, and if you were collecting this monthly, I mean, what a reason to tune in next month. Oh God. Oh God. Yeah. But that's that's something this story does very well. Is is each issue ends with a moment that makes you go, Oh God. Now I like that one. Jean's back. Oh, I have to read the next issue to see how Jean's going to help the league turn the tables on the Injustice Gang. I know, I know. It's just, yeah. I mean, we we sh- Oh man, we we sh- we can only we can only aspire to be this good. Like, this is the gold standard, I think, yep. of, of superhero nonsense. Yeah, the yeah. best I- way to ro- entertaining. If super look, and I'm hopefully if you've listened to this show, you know what I mean when I say this. I don't genuinely feel this, but if comics are trash, because that's what the world thinks of them, this is the best possible trash you could hope for this is this is incredible if you know in if i ever were to get the writing gig to write some justice league comic of some kind it would be the feeling of of the morrison and porter run that i would be trying to recapture Mm. and you know that if i how i do that i've got ideas we've talked about them before but I know for a fact I wouldn't be able to be as good, but if I could just recapture some of that feeling, I'd be happy. And, yeah, no, I, I agree, PJ. And I don't think it's I don't think it's pure nostalgia to look at this era and realise that something special was happening and to want to learn from that because I think there's an honesty to these comics, which I think somehow we've lost a little bit. And I think it would be great to. I be. I think it'd be a wonderful if, if if modern day DC could continue to tell the stories they want to tell, but learn a little something from the approach to superheroes that we saw here. And as I've as I've said countless times, I've spent my entire career in writing, you know, such as it is, heavy air quotes around career, 
But I spent my entire career, I think, subconsciously trying to recreate this story. And I think when I when I get to telling the end of After I Think, it will probably owe a great debt to this story. <laughs> and is there higher praise? No, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I steal from the best, basically. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I've been stealing from Morrison for years, and I will continue to do so. <laughs> Uh, PJ, have we have we said everything we could possibly say about this issue? Have we gushed as much as we can gush? I've got no liquid left in me. That's no. grosser than I intended it to. I do apologise. No, no, believe me, we are we are two just desiccated husks here as we record. <laughs> I mentioned that my knees were sweaty about an hour ago. Like I think my my feet are swimming now. It's just it's my it's back. Awful in here. My back feels gross. This is an yeah. insight nobody wanted, but I I almost don't want to move because then I'd have to acknowledge how disgusting I am. Yeah. Um, I guess I guess I should say then a massive thank you to Gav Mitchell for drawing our incredible cover artwork, and to Elliot Red for composing and performing our amazing theme tune, Justice. And if you've enjoyed hearing PJ and I talk, you can find us on social media. We are not always this hot, we are not always this sweaty, but we are hopefully always as insightful and welcoming. If not exactly. more so, because sometimes we're not this hot and sweaty and our brains haven't melted. No, sometimes we record sitting in front of a freezer with the door open. <laughs> um, PJ, if that really is everything, he said, pregnant pause. I do have a thing I need to shout ooh, about. Oh, I think I can guess. Uh, new project I am on. <gasps> As this episode is released, the first episode should be available on YouTube. And the next episode is this coming Wednesday at 7.30pm live on Twitch. I am taking part in Safe Space, which is a uh, live play of a tabletop role-playing game called Mothership. I am one of the players in the game alongside fellow comic creators Jim Bamfield, Lizzie Boyle and Gavin Mitchell, who did our artwork. Uh, <laughs> and we are being shepherded by the amazingly talented Vince Hunt as our game warden. Uh, 7.30 Wednesday evenings on Twitch. That's 7.30 British summertime at the moment. Please do join us. Check it out. You'd be most welcome. Be great to have you there. Uh, and as I said, if you can't join us live, video on demand available soon after. It's very exciting. I'm excited. I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm also terrified because live gaming is something I've never done. No, PJ, you're going to be great. You're going to be great. <laughs> what, is it about in- what, what, what is it they say about improv? Just yes and... Yeah, I do a lot of that. Yeah, just, you know, imagine imagine you're providing an amazing customer service, PJ. I can do and, that. And the customer is always right, by which I mean your DM. Yeah, no, he is. He is. Annoy- I play Dungeons & Dragons with Vince as well, and I think my character in that has annoyed him a lot as a games master, so I am worried that he might have it out for my character in safe space. <laughs> so everyone, tune in to see PJ's incredibly long-lived character survive for many episodes you know you know it's going to be good because he's pj how could it not be you can find uh the links to that i've i've posted about it on my social media so follow me on twitter facebook instagram wherever i will be shouting about it and i i will i will nick those links off pj and i will make sure that i put them around the show as well so you can find them as well amazing thank you john no no pj god no well deserved and it's it's it, yeah, it's, it's looking to be really amazing. I look, I look forward to hearing more about it. 
So PJ, uh, also one more thing about that. Oh. We have a theme tune for that, which is also by Elliot Red. So if you enjoy the artwork and theme tune to our show, you'll at least enjoy the artwork uh, and theme oh, of tunes course in safe space. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, one thing, he's your brother, I suppose. But here you are kind of poaching the entire JLA cast team yes. for your new exciting Except project. Except you. <laughs> Except me. I'll just sit in my hole sweating, <laughs> feeling sorry for myself. <laughs> Um, PJ, you've been a hero, particularly in this trying weather. Would you please, in your own unique fashion, see us off? I am Puddle. Puddle.